Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Bearded Things. I'm one of your bearded hosts. My name is Chris. As per usual, I'm here with my buddy Tyler. How's it going there, big guy? Uh, uh, well, I've been better. <laughs> um, as we talked on last episode, I was feeling a little bit under the weather, and then um, this week I have tested positive for COVID again. So, yay me, I am dying. That's uh, that sucks. And I'm glad we're socially distancing while we do our show. <laughs> yes, yes, that's the ultimate <laughs> podcast because we are social distanced while um, I am quarantined and trying to breathe and not feel like death twenty four seven. So it's been it's been an adventure. Um, because uh, I had COVID maybe about it. My symptoms ended about a month ago, and I'm still having a daisy of a time breathing. So uh, yeah, my heart goes out. And uh, if anything turns for the worse, I just want you to remember that we do have a public platform and I will be outsourcing <laughs> for your replacement. Hey, that's why I'm here. You know, can't miss a day. I can't afford to be fined by the commissioner. So I guess we should just kind of get into it. So what are you going to be covering tonight with your sick ass? Yeah, <laughs> I'm covering something very short and lighthearted. Uh, that's a lie. I'm actually covering the Zodiac Killer. Nice. Yeah, I picked a great topic to spend all my time talking when I can't breathe. So awesome. <laughs> what are you? What are you covering this week? I'm covering uh, something fun, uh, something for the whole family. I am covering an urban legend called the Midnight Man. Ooh, nice. Yeah, Sounds... it's great. It's terrifying, and it scared the crap out of me. <laughs> Awesome. Well, that sounds like fun. I swear I'm trying to mute it as I'm going. But there'll be lots of coughs in this episode, folks. We apologize. All right. Well, uh, I went first last week. So yeah. uh, The Walking Dead, you, sir, <laughs> are up this week. So for today's episode, I had a lot of time on my hands with the aforementioned COVID positive test that we just spent a little bit of time talking about. And I told Chris I wanted to do a deep dive into something important. And it was a brilliant plan, and I was super proud of myself. But the only problem is uh, I feel like I've been run over by a truck and backed over maybe a couple dozen times. And then someone found a steamroller and brought it to the party and ran me over with that. And to be honest with you, research is very hard when you're trying not to die. So I may have bitten off a wee <coughs> bit too much of what I can chew off, but that's okay because, as we mentioned, you, our dear listener, we deserve you deserve the best. And that's what I'm here to try to give you. So that being said... I'm going to cover one of the most famous serial killers in not only California, but also the world. And that is, as I said before, the Zodiac Killer. Like many serial killers, the Zodiac Killer was only active for a relatively short amount of time in hindsight, but I'm sure during the spree it felt like forever. The first confirmed killing attributed to the Zodiac was in December of 1968, and the last was in October of 1969, so just under a year. While there are only five murders and two attempted murders officially linked to the Zodiac Killer, he claimed to have murdered 37 individuals. The Zodiac liked to target young couples, but also claimed to kill individuals. The first murder, as I said earlier, took place in December of 1968 in the town of Benicia, California. On December 20th, Betty Lou Jensen, 16, and David Arthur Faraday, 17, were on their first date together. Aww and were expected to attend a Christmas concert at their high school, which was only three blocks from, from Jensen's house. They decided to skip the concert, however, and visit a friend before going to eat food at a local restaurant. After eating, roughly around 10.15, they headed down to Lake Herman Road and parked on the side of the road in a little turnout area, colloquially known as Lover's Lane. Sometime after 11 p.m., 
their bodies were discovered by a passerby, Stella Borges. Investigators arrived and using the cutting edge of their forensic technology determined that the couple had only been dead for a matter of minutes. They were also able to determine with some certainty that the killer had drove their car up alongside the couple's car and began walking towards the car. It's unknown if they were ordered out of the car or if Faraday just exited the car to confront the killer, but before Faraday could fully exit the car, he was shot in the head. Jensen then exited the car and tried to run away, but was shot five times in the back. She was found approximately 28 feet from the car. The killer then got back in his car and drove off. Then, eight months later, there was another attack and murder. This time, the killing took place on the 4th of July in Vallejo, California. Around midnight on the 4th of July, 1979, Darlene Farron and Michael Magu drove into Blue Rock Springs Park, parked beside a road. While the couple were sitting in their car, they noticed another car drive up and park alongside their vehicle, but then drove away just as quickly as it had arrived. However, after 10 minutes, the car returned and this time parked behind the couple's vehicle. The driver of the rear car got out and approached the passenger side of the vehicle with a flashlight and a 9mm pistol. The killer used the flashlight to blind the victims before shooting them both, firing a total of five times. Both Farron and McGue were hit and many of the bullets that struck McGue passed through him and also struck Farron. The killer then turned to leave but stopped when he heard McGue let out a moan. He then returned to the car and shot both two more times for good measure. Soon after midnight, around 1240 on July 5th, the Vallejo Police Department received a phone call from a man claiming responsibility for the murders. He also took credit for the murders of Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday some seven months earlier. The police were able to trace the origin of the phone call and determined it came from a payphone at a gas station on the corners of Springs and Tulamine Roads, just three-tenths of a mile from Farron's house, and a mere three blocks from the Vallejo Police Station. Side note, a payphone, for those of you listeners who are younger than 25 or so, is what we used to call when we were out and about before cell phones. It cost a dime, then a quarter, and you could talk for a few minutes before having to put more money in. Just think of it as a subscription-based phone call service. Anywho, the killer was misinformed, and there were not two murders to take credit for that night because Farron died due to her injuries, but McGue survived despite being shot in the face, neck, and chest. McGee was able to get a description of the attacker and stated that he was 26 to 30 years old, roughly 195 to 200 pounds, maybe more, and was about 5 foot 8. He was a white male with short, curly brown hair. The next month, on August 1st, 1969, the Zodiac Killer prepared three letters and mailed them to the Vallejo Times Herald, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the San Francisco Examiner, along with separate parts that, when put together, form a 408-symbol cryptogram. The cryptogram, the killer claimed, contained his identity and had to be published with each of his letters on the front page in the respectful newspapers. Failure to do so, according to the killer, would result in him, quote, cruising around all weekend, killing lone people in the night, then move on and kill another and again and again until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend, end quote. The editor of the Chronicle decided to print the letter, but he didn't want to give him the attention, so he put it on the fourth page and included an op-ed from the editor saying that, quote, we're not satisfied that the letter was written by the murderer and demanded an, an additional letter to confirm his identity. A week later, on August 7th, another letter was received only at the examiner this time, and it began, Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. Earlier in the week, the editor of the examiner had called for more information to, to prove that the killer was the same in both killings, and this letter was the response to that. In that letter, 
the Zodiac provides details of both murders that were unaware to the public and convinced investigators that he was the real killer. The letter also left a message for the police saying that when they crack his code, quote, they will have me. The very next day, the code was cracked, but not by police. It was rather cracked by a couple in Salinas, California named Donald and Betty Hardin, who cracked the code even though it contained numerous misspellings and grammatical errors. I'm going to read the, the, the cipher, like the code, what it says. There's a lot of grammatical errors, so please bear with me. I like killing because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the ultimate danger animal of all to kill. Something, something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise and that I have killed and that the I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or atop my collecting of slaves for the afterlife. Things were quiet for about a month until another murder took place in September of 1969. On September 27th, two college students from Pacific Union College, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard, were having a picnic on a small island on Lake Berryessa. While they were picnicking, a white male, roughly 5'11 and weighing more than 170 pounds with greasy brown hair, approached wearing a black executioner hood with clip-on sunglasses over the eye holes of the hood and a bib type garment on the front of his chest that had a cross circle symbol on it that would become his signature. The killer pulled out a gun and claimed to be an escaped convict from a jail that had a two word name in it from either Colorado or Montana. He also claimed to have killed a guard and then stole a car, which is why he needed the couple's car and money to get to Mexico. The killer had brought with him pre-cut lengths of clothesline and ordered Shepard to tie up Hartnell, then the killer tied her up. When he checked the ties, he noticed that Shepard had tied the bonds super loose, so he had to adjust the bindings for Hartnell. The killer then took out a knife and stabbed Hartnell six times and Shepard ten times. He then hiked 500 yards back to nearby Knoxville Road, where he drew the cross circle symbol on the door of Hartnell's car, and then wrote, Vallejo, 122068, 7469, September 27, 6.30 by knife. At 7.40 p.m., the killer called the Napa County Sheriff's Office once again by payphone and reported this latest set of murders. He stated, quote, I would like to report a murder. No, a double murder. And then stated that he had committed the crime. Once again, the call was traced and the phone was found off the hook only a few blocks away from the police station. The main difference in this case was that it was also that it was 27 miles from the crime scene. He also left a wet palm print on the phone, but it never amounted to anything. Back at the crime scene, the couples were stabbed, but not dead yet, so they began to yell and scream for help. And a man and his son were fishing on the lake when they heard the screams and ran to alert a park ranger. The ranger alerted sheriff deputies who arrived shortly after and transported the couple to Queen of the Valley Hospital. During the ride to the hospital, Shepard lapsed into a coma, which she would never come out of. She would die two days later from her wounds, but Hartnell survived and told police everything he could. This is the one weird thing to me about this is this is the strangest of all the murders because it was so completely different from his usual style. And I think if it wasn't for the phone call, it would have been really hard to say it was related to him. And we'll kind of get into some other stuff later on. But that's just when I was reading that and like the story and like how detailed his story was, it just seems so weird because the other ones were so like heartless and cruel. That is when he, he had this whole backstory. The final confirmed murder attributed to the Zodiac killer happened two weeks later on October 11th of 1969. Paul Stein was a cab driver 
and picked up a white male at the intersection of Mason and Geary Street in San Francisco and requested to go to Presidio Heights. They arrived at the destination, but for some unknown reason, Stein took the cab a block further past the, the normal destination and was then shot in the back of the head. The killer took Stein's wallet and keys and was seen wiping down the cab. He then tore a part of the shirt tail worn by Stein and fled on foot. He was witnessed wiping down the cab and running away by three teenagers who called police to report the crime as it was happening. Two blocks from the crime scene, patrol officers Dan Folk and Eric Zelms responded to the call. Within seconds, they observed a white male walking down the street, stepping away into a vacant stairwell. They estimated the man between 35 and 45 years old, around 5 foot 10, and even though he was slightly older than the initial description, thought it was suspicious enough to try to, to, to try to stop the man. But dispatch corrected their description and they said that they were looking for a black suspect. So the officers ignored the man and continued to the crime scene. It's still unknown as to why the description was changed and what the cause was for that change. Three days later, the San Francisco Chronicle received another letter from the Zodiac, this time containing a piece of Paul Stein's shirt, which left little doubt as to him being the killer. He also added a threat that he was going to start targeting children on school buses, stating that he could, quote, just shoot out the front tire and pick off the kitties as they came bouncing out. A week after that, someone called the Oakland Police Department claiming to be the Zodiac Killer and demanded that two prominent attorneys appear on a local radio talk show. One of them was unavailable, but the other, Melvin Belly, appeared and eventually someone called numerous times claiming to be the Zodiac and also said his name was Sam. He arranged to meet with Belly in person outside of a store on Mission Street, but no one ever showed. A month later, the Zodiac emailed another letter and another cryptogram, this one consisting of 340 letters. This one was dubbed the Z340 and it remained unsolved for 51 years. It was just recently solved on December 5th of last year by an international team of private citizens. They included American software engineer David Orenchek, Australian mathematician Sam Blake, and Belgian programmer Jal van Ickel. The cryptogram states, I hope you are having lots of fun and trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up another point about me. I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me. Where everyone else was nothing when they reached paradise, so they are afraid of death. I am not afraid because I know what my new life is. There will be an easy one in paradise death. Many um, crypto analysis point out that they think that when he's talking about not being the one on the TV show, this references the guy that called into the radio saying he wanted to meet with the attorney. The next day, on October 9th, 1969, the Zodiac mailed a seven-page letter stating that police had actually stopped and spoke with him three minutes after he shot Stein. Later that same day, Officer Falk wrote and signed a memo explaining what exactly happened the night of Stein's murder and that he did not, in fact, stop anyone. On December 20th, exactly one year after the murder of Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday, the Zodiac mailed a letter to Belly along with another piece of Stein's shirt and asked for Belly's help. Over the next four years, the Zodiac would continue to taunt police with letters claiming to take credit for murders, but the phone call that was so much his signature in the previous killings was missing every time. The Zodiac would write letters taking credit and at the bottom would include his cross circle symbol and then an equal sign and a number of killings based on that was in the, in the news. And he would follow that by SFPD for San Francisco PD equal sign zero. So it was kind of like a scorecard for him. In 1974, the Zodiac sent his last letter to the Chronicle. In it, he praised the movie The Exorcist as being, quote, the best satirical comedy that I have ever seen. He included a strange symbol that is still unexplained along with a quote from the opera The Mikado, 
The symbol kind of looks like the backwards K along with a scribbled word underneath, but apparently it's a symbol. He ends the letter with me, 37, SFPD, zero. There were many letters that followed this, these ones, but none of them matched the style of writing or the way it was written. Psychiatrists would analyze the original letters and come to the conclusion that they were written by someone, quote, you would, you would expect to be brooding and isolated and that these new letters were sent in a more angry tone and they didn't match the original style. After the signature letter stopped, so did the killings and the Zodiac Killer was never caught. So now the big question, who the hell was the Zodiac Killer? Since he was never captured, we don't know. Originally, subjects were popping up all over the place because the not-so-well-done composite sketches were not very specific and everyone suspected their uncle, their dad, their friend, their neighbor, their cousin, anyone that roughly resembled a skinny white male with glasses, they thought it was a Zodiac killer. One notable suspect was Arthur Lee Allen. Allen was believed to be in the area when the attacks at Lake Baressa took place, but Allen claimed to be scuba diving at another lake at the time. Then again in 1971, a friend of Allen's claimed that he had spoken of a desire to kill people and would use the name Zodiac to describe himself to his friends. He would often secure a flashlight to his firearm and he, when he would walk at night. He also had a history of being inappropriate around children and never took a wife or a girlfriend. In 1974, Allen was arrested for sexual misconduct with a 12-year-old boy. He pled guilty and served two years in jail. In February of 1991, Vallejo police reopened the Zodiac case and served a search warrant on Allen to obtain his belongings, which Allen complied with. In 1992, Allen died and police served yet another warrant to obtain the rest of his belongings. Most of the evidence in the building was circumstantial and was written off as coincidental. In 2002, the San Francisco Police Department was able to de develop a partial DNA profile based on saliva of the stamps collected, and they used that to compare it to the DNA of Allen as, as well as Allen's friend, and neither one were a match. Others believed to be the Zodiac Killer include the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, and Bruce Davis, a member of the Charles Manson cult. In 1970, a report by the California Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation stated that all male members of the Manson family had been investigated and eliminated as Zodiac suspects. More recently, in February of 2014, it was reported that Louis Joseph Myers had confessed to a friend in 2001 that he was the Zodiac killer after learning he was dying from cirrhosis of the liver. He asked his friend Randy Kinney, to go to the police upon his death. Myers died in 2002, but Kenny allegedly had difficulties getting officers to cooperate and take the claim seriously. There are several potential connections between Myers and the Zodiac case, such as Myers attending the same high school as victims Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday, and supposedly worked at the same restaurant as Darlene Farron. Furthermore, during a period where no Zodiac letters were received, Myers was stationed overseas with the military. Kenny says that Myers confessed he targeted couples because he had had a bad breakup with a girlfriend. While officers associated with the case are skeptical, they believe the story is credible enough to investigate if Kenny could produce credible evidence. Unfortunately, he has been unable to produce any such evidence. To this day, the identity of the Zodiac Killer is still a mystery. Psychologists and behavioral analysis believe that the Zodiac Killer wasn't as fixated on the killings and more so wanting to become famous, and he achieved that with his letters and ability to manipulate the media, police, and the public. He sent a total of four cryptograms, and two of them have yet to be solved, so the world will continue to be curious about who the Zodiac was for years to come. Maybe the most scary thing of all is this. Eyewitness accounts of the killer being in his late 20s to early 30s in his first kill, he most likely is still alive somewhere.
With that happy thought, I bid you a good day and good night. This has been the story of the Zodiac Killer. Nice. And only mildly terrifying at the end. Exactly, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, who knows? There could be an 80-year-old man still trying to kill people. Yeah, it's kind of like the, um, uh, who was the the Golden State Killer who was just arrested? Yeah, they just caught him, what, like five years ago? That's so crazy. Yeah, if was it five years ago already? Uh, I don't know, but it was relatively recent. He was like 75 years old, and uh, he was a creepy old man. Mm-hmm. So yeah, by all accounts, he could still be out there. So uh, I just, you know, encourage everybody, take a look at your old uncles, your old grandpas, and uh, <laughs> just kind of be ask them, you know, Zodiac-related questions. Like, so what's your sign, Pops? And then just mm-hmm. gauge them and, you know, prepare to run. But they're yeah. up there, so you'll probably be fine. Hopefully, yeah. Just go up some stairs. Unless it's one of, like, super grandpas that can still, like, bench press 200 pounds. There's like five of those in the world. I, I think we're good. All right, man. Good job tonight. Thank you. <laughs> I tried my best. All right. And now I think uh, before I die, let's take a commercial break. All righty, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. That was very Wolfman Jack. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not even going to try it. I was going to try to do the the howl, but my lungs can't handle it right now. I'll just end up coming. <laughs> it's a very sad wolf. Yeah, it's a very <laughs> sick wolf. Okay, so now it's time to get into our banter with the Beardsleys. So what is banter with the Beardsleys? Banter with the Beardsley is our fun, very civil, <laughs> off the cuff, <laughs> uh, unscripted kind of fun topic where we talk about questions that you, the listener, submit to us. We read them on the air. And we just have a little bit of discussion or a giant argument that lasts well over a week. Thanks, Gabby, for ruining our friendship last week. Yep. Um, but since I'm dying, we came back to you know continue the show. So that was good. And uh, I believe you have the topic for this week, correct? That is correct, sir. It comes from the website. So it's anonymous because they didn't fill that part out. And that's cool. Oh, come on. But they ask um, a very, very sweet one. They want to know if we believe in soulmates. Yes, I do. Um, both in romantic sense and like platonic sense, they can merge, can be the same person. But I definitely believe that, uh, not necessarily like there's someone out there for everyone, but like <laughs> that there are like. Way to crap on that one person. Yeah. Who was waiting. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, friend. <laughs> um, but no, I believe like, like there's when two people click or they have a connection that's so strong that I, I believe that no matter what, they will end up finding each other somehow, some way, regardless, like I said, whether it's a romantical thing or a platonic thing, I think that there are certain people that are just like kind of destined or meant to meet each other and put an impact on each other's lives. So I definitely, I believe in that. Do you think there's anything to it being from uh, like reincarnation? That's an interesting angle. Um, I I don't know if I can say I believe in reincarnation. I believe in there's some sort, there's something there. Um, I think there is, there's too much science behind like the, what is it, secondary dimensions and alternate dimensions and mirror work, stuff like that. There's a lot of stuff that says that there's this thing, you know, like when the Big Bang happened, there's two sides and all that without getting into like the nerdy science. That's a possibility. That could be a thing. I don't know if it's that's the thing where it's like you're going to like the what was it the Tom Hanks and Holly Berry movie where like they ran into each other over time for like 50,000 years. They Cloud just kept, Atlas. Yeah. Yeah. 
That looked like such a good movie, and it sucked so bad. I didn't see it, but I did see um, The Fountain. That was really good. I that makes me ball. I was like, like that was, that's a really sad movie, but it's I really like so it. so sad, yeah. If you haven't seen The Fountain, nobody did, don't worry. Um, but yeah. I highly recommend you check it out. It's by Darren Aronofsky. Mm-hmm. So it's very dark, weird. The pacing is very off, but the story mm-hmm. is really gripping, in my opinion. Um, I don't... I, I think... How do I, I've never tried to formulate this really. Um, I believe that people can come into your life for a particular reason to inspire change, growth, or artistic expression. You know, people come along that end up being your muse. And I think it's a very important role and it's a role you play for others as well. I, I definitely believe that there are some connections that are stronger than others and they're instant. Synchronicity kind of like a synchronicity but on a bigger scale and like personal like you might meet somebody in passing or at work and you're like no i'm 100 percent comfortable with this person in every possible way Mm -hmm. and then it could be fleeting right so that'll last for a week or you know that person inspires you to write a particular thing i I'm, i'm you know i'm more into the arts so for me you draw inspiration from people from places Mm. so they could inspire you to do that or they could not inspire you to do that and just kind of help you get through a a time that you're going through so are there i don't know if i believe i guess what i'm saying is i don't know if i believe in one single soulmate for the rest of your life but i think there might be somebody who's supposed to help you with something (laughs) if that makes any sense no, that makes sense. I, I get that. that. Yeah, it may not be a soul like lasting forever type thing, but definitely someone that impacts your life to that point. I, I, I think that's that makes sense. I get it. Yeah, because you never know. It could just be somebody at a gas station, but that person had to come down there, bump into you, and then you have this deep, meaningful collection, connection that lasts for X amount of time, and you're better for it. I think those kinds of things are rare, and I think that's what makes them stand out the most. I think it's something all of us have experienced to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you haven't, I do believe there is that person for you out there somewhere. And it might not be a romantic, <laughs> lifelong relationship, but it might be a two or three month neighbor that you just completely bond with on an emotional yeah. and intelligent level. That's something you haven't experienced before. And it's kind of weird, fresh, exciting, and kind of cool. So I think, I hope that answered the anonymous question. Yeah, kind I hope of. so. Yeah, to, to summarize, I think we both do to different degrees. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of us is a little bit more pessimistic about it. And I thought it would be me, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I was a pessimistic. You're like, there is nobody out there for you. You are alone. You will die. It was just very French. It, went, yeah. <laughs> it got nihilist really fast. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. All right, that was good. But so now it's your turn, correct? It is my turn. So here we are the first week of February. Christmas and New Year's have passed, and sure, we have Valentine's and St. Patrick's coming up. But I don't really like chocolates or flowers, and I'm a grown-ass man who doesn't need an occasion to drink way too much and speak in a really bad Irish accent. I could do that on my own, thank you very much. What I'm saying is, I miss Halloween. A lot. I miss the creepiness in the air, the feeling of watching too many horror movies and needing somebody to stand outside the bathroom door because I scared myself, you know? It's, it's a thing. I wanted to capture the essence of Halloween, and what better way to do that than by dabbling with things we don't quite understand. As long as humans have believed in spirits, which is a very long time, they created rituals to communicate with them, and inevitably, 
Some guy would take those rituals, add a little spin, and dare his friends to do it, and that eventually led to the game Candyland. Okay, I'm totally kidding, but throughout recorded history, we've had things like Bloody Mary, which we've covered in several others. So, my bearded friends, I've searched high and low on Google and found a game that's fun for the whole family. Note, please do not play these games under any circumstances, ever. These are more likely complete urban legend mixed with crap, or they can be completely true. Either way, we here at Bearded Things do not take any responsibility for the actions you take with your eternal soul. <laughs> As per usual, please take all of this with a giant grain of free-range organic vegan salt. And now, game on. Tonight's game is called The Midnight Game. And ironically enough, as I'm writing this, I look down on the clock on my laptop, and of course, it was literally midnight. Great. The Midnight Game is an old pagan ritual, allegedly used mainly as punishment for those who've broken the laws of whichever pagan religion is in question. There is absolutely no evidence to support any of that, and I wasn't able to track its origin, which I really tried hard to do. What are the rules? Well, I'm glad you asked. It gets a little complicated. In fact, it's more along the lines of a ritual, but let's get started. First things first, you need a candle and a candle holder. Plenty of matches. Some of the rules state that you can't use a lighter, a pen and paper, something to draw blood with, a wooden front door, and salt. Now that you have all your supplies, let's sort out what you'll be doing. Everything should be set up and ready before midnight, as you won't have time to go back for everything you need once the game has begun. So once you're ready, you do the following. Write your name on the paper with the pen. Prick yourself and put a drop of blood on the paper. Gather the rest of your supplies and place the paper with your name and blood in front of the wooden door. Turn off all of your lights and electronics. I mean everything. It needs to be pitch black. Light your candle. Once it's reached 1159, set your lit candle next to the paper and begin knocking on your front door 22 times, completing the 22nd knock as the clock strikes midnight. After the 22nd knock, open your door, blow out your candle, close your door, and immediately relight your candle. Begin moving all over your house and don't stop moving. Keep doing this until 3.33 a.m. It's a pretty simple game, right? I mean, at least from the description. Uh, here's a couple of hints, right? During the course of the game, be mindful of the following. Do not stay in one place for longer than a few seconds at most, or else he will catch you. Who will catch you, you might ask? Well, that would be the Midnight Man. The Midnight Man takes many forms. Predominantly, he appears as a dark, shadowed figure of a man. So as you're walking through your house, he's trying to catch you on opposite corners, and he's kind of circling you. So you have to constantly be moving. If he appears, do not taunt the Midnight Man. If your candle goes out and you're unable to relight it, within about 15 seconds, stop whatever you're doing, draw a circle of salt around you, and do not move until 3.33 a.m. Do not leave your house until the game has ended. Even if you aren't sure if the summoning worked, follow the rules until 3.33 just to be safe. Do not go to sleep during the game. Do not turn on any lights or electronics. Your candle is the only light source allowed. You'll know when he's near, they say. As you'll feel panic, dread, hear voices, see movement out of the corner of your eye, hear knocks and thuds throughout the house. Long story short, don't let him catch you. According to legend, some say he will make you hallucinate your greatest fear. 
Some say he will haunt you for the rest of your life. And others say he will rip out all of your organs one by one if he catches you, which kind of loses me on that one. <laughs> I just would think if somebody was doing this, because I'm sure kids are out there doing this, it, and of course they got their organs ripped out, that would make some <laughs> type of national headline. Like, yeah, someone would know that. Some kid named Derek's organs were rem- removed in Iowa, but haven't heard that yet. <laughs> One Reddit user who played the game with their friend wrote a detailed recap of their experience starting at midnight and updating every event until 3.33. His story starts out kind of slow and uneventful until about an hour in. They begin to hear whispers from different parts of their house. It escalated from there. Please feel free to look up his story and granted most things on places like Reddit tend to be more along the lines of creepypasta. And if you don't know what creepypasta is... (laughs) The, I guess the challenge of it is to make a completely terrifying, realistic story and then post mm-hmm. it and other people kind of rate it. But the goal is to make it realistic. But this one seemed pretty legit. It's pretty long and detailed, but he closes with a few updates a few days after the game. He says, uh, TLDR, which for my elder millennial crowd, it's uh, too long, didn't read. Don't <laughs> play the midnight game. Nothing about it was worth it. He goes on to describe the nightmares that followed for a few nights. I have had horrible nightmares for the past two nights. Horrible. People I know in places from my childhood, they'll be talking to me normally and calmly, and then suddenly their eyes are pupilless and their tongue is wagging, almost as absurdly creepy as the original Evil Dead, only in a realistic way that I can't and will not describe. None of my dreams have involved the Midnight Man, but I can't help but feel like I lost. I don't know if I'm being tormented or if I'm just paranoid. He uh, played the game with his friend, we'll call him R., He said he spoke with R the next day, and he had a nightmare as well. But his had to do with drowning and being resuscitated and then drowning again. No, thank you. I haven't spoken to him yet today, so I don't know if he had another bad dream tonight, he goes on to say. Now, is there any truth to this urban legend? Well, I don't know. I do know reading about it gave me a very unsettling feeling, and I cannot stress enough, please don't play these games. As the Reddit user explained, it isn't worth it. Thinking about it, our group of friends has gone to just about every haunted location that was within driving distance in our hometown. Like, we've done a lot of stupid things and dares just for the sake of entertaining each other. I don't think we've ever done anything like this. And I'm actually kind of glad. I do think it's strange, though, that a paranormal game never came up in our, like, teen years. Anyhow, that, my bearded friends, is the legend of the Midnight Game and the Midnight Man. Damn, nice. Yeah. Nobody knows what he is. Nobody really knows where he came from, but it's unlike the Slender Man, whereas Slender Man, hmm. you can actually pinpoint to the day he was created and the creator. Yeah. yeah. This one stems along the lines of Bloody Mary, where it kind of goes back for centuries, the, a, a ritual similar to this, but there's no exact origin for it. Hmm. So it's one of those timeless things that's just kind of popped up in and out of you know, pop culture or paranormal culture. Yeah. Definitely. For, for ages. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, you're pretty much on death's door. If you want to try it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me find some candles and some salt. Uh, yeah. That's like, I know my house fairly well, you know, I know mm. all the little nooks and crannies cause I've pretty much stuffed crap in it to hide it. But mm. you know, that's how I clean my house. But I don't think I'd feel comfortable doing this. 
I don't think I could run around for three and a half hours. Like I couldn't do it. I would have to stop. I'd have to go pee. I'd have to, you know, stop somehow. And is that maybe part of the process, the psychological side of it? I'm sure. Yeah. It's like, oh, three and a half hours. And like, you have to get through what the midway point of the witching hour. Like, come on. Yeah. So there's that factor. And then just the fatigue of it, the, yeah, the, the paranoia of it, like your mind would literally start playing tricks on you. Maybe that's where the hallucinations come in. It could be. Especially, can you take the candle with you? Yeah, you have to keep the candle with you at all times when you're walking oh, through okay. your house. And it has to stay lit. Yeah, there's no way. That's just going to blow out in my house. Yeah, and then how do you keep a candle lit for three and a half hours? You have to have a really long candle. Or like, do, can you swap them? I don't know. I will Venmo, Venmo you right now a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a whole dollar? How can I, how can I resist? <laughs> it's on the table. I'm just saying. You want to fake a cough to get out of it. I mean, that's, uh, that's your cough. <laughs> if I'm not here next week, folks, you know what happened. It's His, either COVID or the midnight man. <laughs> I think that's a wrap for us here at Bearded Things this week. If uh, somebody wanted to send something to us, send us a banter with the Beardleys topic, something for Campfire Tales, which we are coming back with, I swear to God. <laughs> Where and how can they do that? They can do that by finding any of our social medias. Our Instagram is at Bearded Things Pod. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash Bearded Things. We also have a Facebook friends group. It's called the Bearded Things Bearded Friends Group. Um, you can also visit our Twitter, which is at Bearded Things. Our YouTube is at Bearded Things Pod. And we have a website, which is www.beardedthings.com. You can click on the contact us form there. It sends us an anonymous message unless you put your name, which if you do, please put your name so we know who to thank for the lovely submissions. And you can also email us at contact us at beardedthings.com. All right. Well, that should just about do it for this week. We will talk to you guys next week. Bye. <laughs> Like the saddest pie ever. <laughs> <laughs>